who served in the military, of course, this weekend. We're mindful of that as a, as a nation, as a society, especially those of you who lost maybe a friend or a family member. Uh, you, maybe you served along somebody in Vietnam or whatever the case may have been. Uh, we want to thank you uh, just for, for your sacrifice and for your love. And uh, certainly I hope that we'll take some time tomorrow, that we'll remember that, that we'll express some appreciation and that uh, we'll have a good time as a country uh, not neglecting that. Welcome if you're new. I want to tell you who I am. I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Every Sunday we have new people come our way, and I try to meet as many of you as I can, but I almost never get to meet everybody. So if you're new, a couple things just to know. First of all, go by our welcome desk after the service. If you haven't been there already, it's, it's right by the front doors. We have a gift bag we want to put in your hands. Uh, you'd, you'll be glad that you got that, I promise you. There's no strings attached, you know. We just want to be a blessing to you and give that to you. And generally, that's where our pastors hang out after the service, so you can meet myself or one of our other pastors. And we would love to know your name. We'd love to know, you know, where you're from or what brought you here. So I hope that you will go by and do that. Also, if you're new, the video just mentioned it. We have a class designed for you. It's called Intro to Harvest. And that class is to help answer your questions and let you know uh, what we believe, what, what we're doing, what God's doing here at our church, and answer your questions. But it's also designed to help you connect into what God's doing here at our church. So if you're new, that is the one-stop shop. It's where you can visit and be a part of, and I hope that you'll come there. The next one's here in a couple weeks in June, and just sign up on the website. We would love to host you. It'd be a great time. I do want to point out before I move on this morning, Mike Tatum, where are you at? Wave at me, Mike. He's somewhere in the room. Over there is Mike, okay? Uh, this morning, we're just kind of formalizing really what already has been. Mike uh, has been a part of the church now for, I don't know, before COVID. It's been going on a couple of years now, I guess, but never has officially uh, joined the church and uh, has a testimony of salvation, knows the Lord, loves the Lord, been baptized, and wants to kind of make that uh, an official step. So if you'd like to welcome him into our church membership officially, would you give him a hand and, uh, and welcome him? We are glad, Mike, legitimately. We're, we're glad we've been together now for a period of months, but we're glad to, to formalize what, what has been, that you're, that you're part of the family. Before I jump into today's sermon, I do want to just take a, a moment and update you on a personal item in the Likens family. I very rarely, like very rarely do this from the pulpit, but so many of you have been bending my ear and asking me over the last couple weeks, uh, how's your son Cruz doing? So some of you may have heard uh, our third-born Cruz, he's three and a half, uh, was diagnosed with Lyme's disease a few weeks ago and uh, was bit by a tick and then a couple weeks later started manifesting a, a lot of symptoms and uh, really was, was frankly just crippled by it, honestly. And uh, got the blood work done, went to the doctor, started, started some medications. And uh, those, he's off the medications now, it's been about three weeks. Uh, those have, have improved his symptoms uh, dramatically, and by and large, he's the same kid now, and we're thankful for that, we're praising the Lord for that. Uh, there's still some, some vestiges and some symptoms that are lingering, and we're not sure how long-lasting those are going to be, or, or how, uh, you know, just permanent they'll be, or how severe they'll be, uh, but we're working the problem and going to, to the medical community as much as we can, but also trusting the Lord and, uh, and praying to him and putting crews in his hands as much as we can, which is always a good approach with, with physical things, right? Right? Go to the doctors for help. Go to God for healing. That's, that's a good one-two punch right there. So uh, we're doing that. But I just wanted to thank you guys and, and let you know, uh, literally 10 or 20 of you have been asking me the last couple of weeks after service. So I just wanted to let you all know that, that he is on the mend and he's improving. And I want to thank you for loving us. I don't mention that request to be selfish because I know that like 
you have requests too. And you're like, Pastor, say mine and have people pray for me too. And we actually do have a space for that. Just as a reminder, we have a website dedicated to that called harvestprayerwall.info. Our website is harvestbaptist.info. And that website is harvestprayerwall.info. And it's literally a prayer wall. It's what it is. And uh, you can submit requests and pray for people's requests. It's very interactive. And I know a lot of you uh, check that out and you pray for people regularly. If you don't do that, then maybe go check it out this week. I think you'd be glad that you did and start to pray for your church family. But thank you for praying for us. I thank you for loving us. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, it's, It's a privilege to be one of you and to have such love from the family. And not just for loving us, but for loving each other. I know you love each other. For loving our community. I got a phone call from a church member here just a few days ago that said, Pastor, uh, my neighbor a few doors down, their, their house burned down, the family lost everything. And I know that we love our community. I know we'd want to help. Uh, can someone reach out? Can I give you their phone number? And can we step up? Can we be a blessing? And I said, I'm so glad that you know that we would want to help in that because we do want to help in things like that. Give us the number. We're able to reach out and connect and, and try to be a blessing to that family. And even some of what you, know, you give, you oftentimes are able to provide food and clothing and help and shelter for people in some of those practical ways. So it's a beautiful thing when, when our church loves God and we love each other and we love the community. And, and I think our reputation, even for loving the community, is growing, which I think is a beautiful thing. I think even we as a church are growing in that and what it means to be generous do-gooders and to step up and to help meet real practical needs. So all that to say, I'm rambling now, but all that to say, thank you for being a loving people. Just thank you for being a loving people. It means the world. I do want to say one more thing before we get to today's sermon. Uh, summer's right around the corner. Obviously, we're at Memorial Day weekend. We're, we're about to hit June. Uh, our team has been working hard to ensure that this summer is not of a few months where we take our foot off the gas pedal, but rather a time where we actually invest time and energy and resources into you and try to help your spiritual walk grow and mature in your relationship with Jesus. So we have a number of things planned. Some of them have already been announced. Some of them will be announced later, uh, all the way from summer camp for teenagers to vacation Bible school for kids to our singles ministry. We're changing a few things up, and I'm excited about some changes there. Homecoming weekend, of course, is here in a couple of weeks. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we have a day in mid-July. We ha- we're not revealing it yet. We will here in a couple of weeks uh, that we have been preparing for and planning on working on as a staff literally since the beginning of February that we're really, really excited about. And I don't mean to be a tease, but uh, you'll hear more about that here in a couple weeks. So we are trying to invest in you because I believe, honestly, as a pastor, that summer can be a time where you grow spiritually, where you actually begin to uh, mature more and engage more. But I also understand that it can be a time where your normal rhythms are disrupted and you can spiritually get off track or perhaps some rhythms were already disrupted with coronavirus or perhaps even you're watching right now on live stream and you've been thinking, hey, I I need to get back in the room. It's time, you know, I'm vaccinated or things have died down. But, you know, summer, I'll just wait to the fall. Don't do that. Don't, Don't let your spiritual rhythms continue to be disrupted. So this summer, Go, like travel, have a good time, get away. Uh, Many of you are due for that because you couldn't a lot last year with all things COVID. Uh, So get away, unplug, recharge, uh, rest, make some memories, enjoy the weather, two thumbs up, go do it. But be sure when you're doing that, that you still have your priorities in order and you don't go overboard and just begin to put camping above Jesus all summer long, right? So there's, there's a, a healthy balance there and there's even a priority order there. So as your pastor, I just want to lovingly encourage you uh, to engage with the Lord and continue to grow this summer. And we'll do our best to support you in that. We'll do our best to, to help you in that. 
All right, Esther chapter number, what chapter are we in? Six. We're in Esther chapter six. If you're trying to find that, that's in my Bible, like page 560-ish, so that may help you find it. Esther chapter number six. Let's review. We are more than halfway through this story. Uh, Today's a, a big focal point in the story, a big turning point. So let's review just a little bit. Chapters one and two, we are introduced to two of the four main characters, all right? We're introduced to Xerxes. Xerxes is a king who rules Persia 2,500 years ago. Xerxes is the world ruler of the day. He's the most powerful man in the world. And Xerxes gets drunk at a banquet, and he more or less divorces or banishes his wife, Queen Vashti. Chapter number two, Xerxes regrets that decision and decides he needs a new wife. So he decides to run the bachelor season one and to bring in a bunch of women and to, and to court them and date them and sleep with them. And eventually he gives a rose to Esther, this young, beautiful Jewish girl, and says, I want you to be the new queen, and she is. Then we're introduced in the next two chapters to the last two of the main four characters, uh, Mordecai is Esther's adopted dad. He's actually her cousin, but older cousin, adopted dad. Mordecai is a government official. And Mordecai, we learn, uh, discovers this plot to assassinate the king. He discloses it. They actually are able to save the king's life and to head off this assassination attempt. And Mordecai is not rewarded for this. He gets no treat, no cookie, he gets nothing. Instead, his arch nemesis, this man by the name of Haman, is promoted to be the prime minister or second in command of the Persian government. Haman is a man who hates Mordecai because Mordecai will not honor him, will not reverence him, will not bow to him, will not give him the respect that he deserves. So Haman decides that he is going to kill Mordecai and to top it off, he wants to kill all of Mordecai's people. He wants to just eliminate the Jewish people. So he connives and deceives, and he gets King Xerxes to sign off on a law that says 11 months from now, there's going to be a day where we're going to have a purge. And any Jewish people, you can kill them and destroy them and annihilate them, and you can plunder them. You can take all of their goods, and you can take all their stuff, and you can keep it for yourself. And Haman knows a lot of this will funnel its way into the king's treasury. So the king signs off on it, not really knowing what he's doing. And Mordecai and Esther find out about this. And of course, they're grieved. They're grieved, and, they, and they, they mourn, and they begin to pray, and they begin to fast. And they come up with this plan where Mordecai says, Esther, go to your husband, the king, and talk him off the ledge. Get, get him to undo this. Go plead on behalf of us. And Esther says, great idea, two thumbs up. Only he hasn't wanted to see my face for a month now. And if you go to the king unannounced, uninvited, the rule is you die. The exception to the rules, occasionally he'll spare your life and he'll hear what you have to say. But most of the time you die. So I'm going to risk my life if I go to the king. But she decides she's going to do it. So they pray and they fast and she does. Chapter 5, she steps up to the plate. She goes to the king. She gets all dolled up. She gets all of her uh, queen apparel on. She goes to him. And the king doesn't kill her. He actually extends grace to her and says, what do you want? I'm in a good mood. Try me. Give me your request. And she says, here's my request. I want to have dinner with you. Come to dinner tonight. I have a dinner party planned. You And by the way, bring Haman with you. So the king and Haman come, and Esther's at dinner, and the king says again, all right, we're at dinner. What do you want? Uh, I, know, I know you have an agenda here. You know, what do you want? And she says, what I want is come to dinner tomorrow night. I want to do this again. Let's have another dinner party and bring Haman back. So Haman leaves the banquet, and he is happy. He is elated. He's on cloud nine. You know, the king loves me. He made me second command. The queen loves me. She wants to have dinner with me. 
But as he leaves, he sees Mordecai, and Mordecai won't bow or give him respect. And all of a sudden, he comes crashing down from cloud nine, and he's grieved. And he, he goes home to his wife and to his friends, and he complains. He says, this stinking Mordecai, he is stuck in my crawl. I can't shake this guy. And they say, you know what? Then just kill him. Just, just kill the guy. Tomorrow, when you go to the banquet, don't run the risk of coming back home angry and sad again. Just be done with him. Kill him. He says, great idea. Overnight, spend the night, build some gallows in the backyard, and I'm going to go to the king tomorrow. I'm going to get this dude killed. So chapter number six rolls around, and Haman's going to go into the king, only he doesn't know the king that night couldn't sleep. And when he couldn't sleep, he said, you know what? Servants, come, come read me some of the stories from our kingdom. And they came and they began to read stories, and they read the story from five years ago where Mordecai had spared the king's life and discovered this assassination attempt. And the king says, time out. Did we do anything for that guy? Did, like, did we honor him? Did I get, put a star on his chart or something? He says, no, we didn't do a thing for this guy. He says, we should honor this guy. So the next morning, here comes Haman. I want to kill Mordecai. And here comes the king, and they meet. And the king says, Haman, what should I do to somebody that I want to honor? And Haman says, must be me. Like, who would he want to honor but me? I'm the stuff. So I would give him a crown. I'd give him your robes. I'd give him your horse. I would like parade him around the city and be like, doo, 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 doo. this is the guy the king wants to honor. Look at him. You know, I, I would shoot some confetti cannons. I, I would have a good time. Just let everyone know this guy's awesome. He's a great idea. Why don't you go do that for Mordecai and get it done right now? Don't delay. Do it right now. And Haman, now defeated, has to go take his, his enemy, put him on a horse, lead him through the streets, declare and sing his praises to everybody. And that's where we left the story off last week of Haman being done with this task and now going back home before the second banquet with his head hung low. So chapter 6, verse number 12, <clears throat> let's read about this. Mordecai came again into the king's gate. So after he was honored and he had this like, Surprise for the day that you're going to be, you know, the number one guy. But Haman hasted to his house, mourning and having his head covered. So head covered is a sign of grief. He's mourning. He's very distraught. Verse 13, Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews, before whom thou hast begun to fall, Thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. So these are the same friends, mind you, that 24 hours prior had acted as counselors of vengeance. And now, a day later, after they told him to build the gallows and kill Mordecai, what they say is, Haman, we're going to predict your downfall, bro. Like, Mordecai's a Jewish guy, and apparently they know that God's on their side or something. And if you've begun to stumble in front of him, you're going to fall flat on your face. And they have these words that are very reminiscent of like Balaam, the, the prophet, the pagan prophet, who didn't know God and he wasn't part of God's people, but he produced and pronounced blessing upon God's people because he knew who they were and he knew who God was. It's very reminiscent of Rahab, the, the Jericho harlot who has the people of God introduced to her, and she's not part of God's people, but she says, you know what, I've heard about you, and I've heard about your God, and we don't stand a chance in front of you. So these are actually words of faith, but not from people of faith, not from people who, who really believe in Jehovah God, but they're words of faith, and they say, Haman, uh, we think you're done for, man. We think you're toast. And I'm sure Haman's thinking, like, it would have been nice to know that yesterday. <laughs> you know, you could have, I could have avoided a lot of this if you would have told me before, but nevertheless, here they are. And, verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains, and they hasted to bring Haman unto the banquet that Esther had prepared. So there's a ton of irony here. 
Haman had wanted to eliminate Mordecai so that he could go to the banquet and be happy at the banquet and be sure that he could come home in a good mood. And instead, he's going to the banquet, not just with the potential that, you know, Mordecai may haunt him, but, I mean, just being haunted all the more by this man, being drugged to this banquet, probably having to plaster a smile on his face. But here he goes off to the banquet with the king and the queen. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman came to the banquet with Esther the queen. And the king said again unto Esther on the second day at the banquet of wine, What is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? It shall be performed even unto the half of the kingdom. Same words, third time. Three times he's offered assurances. Esther, I'm in a good mood. Esther, try me. Esther, what do you want? I'm inclined to give this to you. Now understand, although this is being built up and you probably know where the story's going to go, in this moment there's still supposed to be a lot of tension. Yes, he has said, what do you want? I'll give it to you, even half of my kingdom. And he said it three times. But Esther knows this man is very fickle. She knows who Xerxes is. To help you understand this a little better, there's actually a, a story from history about Xerxes that he had a man who was a, a large financial backer and contributor to his kingdom, a man who actually offset and supplied money for his campaign, Xerxes' campaign against the Greeks, which he lost. But he had supplied him with a lot of money. This man had hosted Xerxes in his home on multiple occasions, and he had five sons who served in Xerxes' army, all five of his sons. And this man went to Xerxes and said, I have a request. I want to be sure that my family name continues. I would like my eldest son, not all five, but one of them, the eldest son, would you consider releasing my eldest son from the army? And Xerxes took his eldest son and cut him in half, and had his army march in between the pieces of his son. Okay, so this is the man you're dealing with. That's not a biblical story. That's just a story from history that Herodotus records for us. This is a man who you don't trifle with this dude. You, you don't just make requests of him willy-nilly. Esther knows this. So this is still a moment where Esther has likely rehearsed her lines in front of a mirror over and over again. Her heart is pounding. There is a lump in her throat, and she's finally, now three times in, she's finally going to step up to the plate and make her request known. And here she goes, verse number three. Esther the queen answered and said, If I have found favor in thy sight, O king, if it please the king, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. So here's what she says, more or less. King, here's what I want. I don't want to be murdered. I want my life to be given me. Now, you think the king saw that one coming? <laughs> I don't know what the king thought she would request or what all this buttering up was about. You know, all of the getting dolled up and the queenly apparel and, and the food and the drink and the banquets. I don't know what he thought he was being buttered up for. You know, do a new dishwasher or some new clothes, shopping spree, vacation, an addition on the house, whatever. But he probably was not expecting, I just don't want to be murdered, man. But that's what she says. I don't want to be murdered. I don't want my people to be murdered. And he's very likely stepping back and like, what do you mean? Like, who's trying to murder you? Who are, you? who are your people? What are you talking about? Who's trying to kill you? Who would do this? And she continues, for we are sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be slain and to perish, which is exactly the language of the decree that was given by Haman and the king. And the king at this point has got to be racking his brain and trying to understand like, what are you talking about? Who would do such a thing? Who would, who would make such an affront on my kingdom as to try to sell my wife, my queen, try to kill my queen or her people 
who are your people? The king is probably starting to get very angry. He just doesn't know who to be angry with at this moment in time. And then she continues, but if we had been sold for bondmen and bondwomen, I had held my tongue, although the enemy could not countervail the king's damage. So that last phrase is, is really complicated, I must admit. But it's a big statement where Esther more or less says, king, look, I wouldn't trouble you with petty stuff. Like, if I was just sold into slavery, I wouldn't say anything to you. That would be far too trivial for you. I know you're a busy man. I know you have a lot going on. I'm not just going to bring requests to you, you know, here and there. I don't want to bring trivial matters to your attention. But they wanted to kill me, and they're wanting to kill my people. That's the only reason I bring this up. And the king by now is, is furious. Who would dare threaten his queen or his empire? And verse 5, King Ahasuerus answered and said unto the Esther the queen, Who is he? Where is he that, that does presume in his heart to do this? Who, who would dare do such a thing? Who is this person? Where is this person? And before Haman can figure out what's happening, the, the finger's going to be pointed right at his face. And the king is going to be enraged with Haman. And Esther says, verse 6, the adversary, the enemy, this wicked Haman. And she points him out. Now before we continue, let's, let's just stop for a moment and notice two things. This t- portion of the text is all about Esther finally identifying with her people. If you remember, the the passages have been very clear in chapters 2 and chapters 3 that Esther was explicitly told by Mordecai, don't identify with God's people. Don't, Don't claim Jehovah God. Don't be part of the people. Keep your faith hidden. Keep your faith silent. And Esther has to to go through a lot of stuff. I mean, she sleeps with a guy who's not her husband. She marries a pagan man. She eats things that are not a kosher diet. I mean, she breaks a lot of God's laws to do this. And we've spent a lot of time talking about how that, frankly, was wrong, and it was not good, and it wasn't good advice. And Esther wasn't a super moral person in in those moments. But she finally now, years later, is to the point where she is going to step up to the plate. She's going to unequivocally identify herself with the people of God and say, I'm part of God's people. And not at potential risk to her life, but at certain risk to her life. This isn't a moment like if I identify with the people of God, maybe it'll, like, I don't know, it could be risky, it could be not. She knows that there has been a law that's been signed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which means it cannot be undone no matter what. And in the coming weeks, we'll look at how they kind of wiggle around the law without undoing it, because they can't undo it. She knows the law can't be undone, even if Xerxes wants to, and that she and her people have been condemned to death. And in this moment, she's willing to say, hey, there's a whole list of Jewish people that are condemned to die. Give me the pen. I'm putting my name on the list. I'm identifying with the people of God. I will stand up. I will be bold. I will not be ashamed. I will identify. Now, there's a lot, there's a lot of implications here for us, okay? So I'll be brief on this because we've hit it before. But first of all, don't be a closet Christian. I'll echo it once again. Don't be a person who tries to just weigh it out. Every single situation at work, in the neighborhood, with your family, is claiming the name of Jesus going to cost me? Is it not going to cost me? Is it to my advantage? Is it not to my advantage? Don't be that person. Don't be the person that, that is sometimes Christian and sometimes not. Don't be the person that when you finally say you are Christian, half your workplace is like, since when? Like, I didn't see that. What? Don't be that person, okay? Have a bold faith. Have, have an overt faith, not a covert faith. Be that person. But I will say beyond that, be willing to identify yourself with the people of God, not just to a lost and undone world, but be willing to even identify yourself with the people of God in the idea of be, belonging to a church and belonging to a community of faith and belonging to a people, the community of God. 
So there is this very modern American idea that all I need is a personal relationship with God. Now, I'm for a personal relationship with God, but the idea that all you need is a personal relationship with God is unbiblical. I've read the book from cover to cover a few times. It's not in there. The idea that the only thing you need is you and Jesus, and you can just be in your house, and you know what? I have this great prayer life, and I commune with God all day long, and my knees have blisters because I pray so much, and I read my Bible, and I study, and of course I have the Holy Spirit, so it's just me and God, and me and God, and it's so sweet, and it's so awesome. And I'll even tell unbelievers about him, but, but I, I don't do church, and I don't, I don't, I don't do you know, the people of God. That is not biblical. God is very clear that part of belonging to him is not being a Lone Ranger Christian and all by yourself. Have a relationship with him, yes. Make it personal, yes. But it's not meant to be private in the, in the idea that you would not belong to a community of faith. God knows that there are some things in your life for you to mature on, you have to be with other people and other believers, for you to grow in what it means to forgive like Jesus forgives, for you to grow in what it means to forbear other people or to be patient with other people or to encourage other people, all of those ideas, biblical concepts, ways for you to grow spiritually, you need other people for. You need someone to offend you wildly so you can learn what it means to forgive. That's how it works. You don't forgive unless someone did something that was, that was you know, a low blow. For, for you to forbear other people there have to be people that you have just have to put up with that are annoying as all get out. And sometimes people are annoying. Even people in this room are sometimes annoying to you. That can help shape you. That's not a bad thing. When you're adopted into the family of God, you get a heavenly father. He adopts you and you are his child and you get a heavenly father. But guess what? You get some siblings too, right? If I adopt a child into my house and say, welcome, love, you will be my son, I will be your father. Welcome to the family. But uh, Brennan and Willow and Cruz and Deacon, my other kids, and just ignore them. Don't worry about them. You would say, that's no way. If he's going to be your son and part of your family, then he's naturally going to have to be part of the family with the brothers and sisters too, right? So the idea that I can just be me and God, vertical, father and son, father and daughter, all this, but I ignore my siblings in Jesus and I ignore my brothers and sisters in Jesus and I'm not part of a community of faith. No, 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 no. It don't work that way. That's an unbiblical hatching of your imagination. You are not meant to be all by yourself. You are meant to be part of a church and have a church family. Now, admittedly, I'm biased, okay? I think that ours is the best, okay? I'll be the first. To, not that we've arrived <clears throat> or that we're perfect. We have a lot of growing to do, but I'm biased. But I'm not even saying this church, all right? Some of you are maybe here from Memorial Day weekend and you're out of town or perhaps you're visiting. And it may not be this church, but there should be a church that you belong to and people know you and you do life on life with them and you rub shoulders with them and you're able to encourage each other and provoke each other to good works, that's needful for you, okay? So identify with God out with the unbelieving world. Identify with God's people and the idea of being part of a church. But also I would even go so far as to apply this in a way of identifying with God and God's people in baptism. Baptism is more than identifying with God and his people, but it is not less than that. It's more than that, but it's not less than that. I want to read you what happened at Jesus' baptism, in case you think I'm making this up. Jesus' baptism, we read about it in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17. I'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus, when he was baptized, he went up straightway out of the water, and lo, here's what happens. 
The heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. What's all that about? What's all this, like the Spirit comes on him and the voice of the Father says, That's my Son, I love him, I'm proud of what he's doing. What's all this about? It's a whole lot of identifying with each other. This is the triune God publicly identifying with each other, okay? You think Jesus knew before his baptism that the Father was the Father? You think he knew that the Father loved him? Sure he did. But there were a whole lot of disciples, there were a whole lot of other people around publicly, John the Baptist, disciples all around this baptism, they're they're clicking now. Oh, this, this, they're, they're seeing the triune God here and them identifying with each other. There's a whole lot of identifying that happens at Jesus' baptism. And the same is true for you. There's a whole lot of you when you're baptized. The Part of the point is that I am willing to identify myself with Jesus, with his gospel, and with his people. So when you're baptized, there's a whole lot of symbolism there. You Water, right? That's the cross. You go under the water, immersed, buried. You come up out of the water, raised, all meant to be the gospel that you believe in. There's when we baptize, and Jesus even said, baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why? Is is that like a magic formula, right? Abracadabra, is that what that is? No, it's saying I identify with the triune God. In my baptism, I'm identifying with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. We're identifying with each other right here. And I'm doing this and I'm making sure everyone else knows that I'm identifying. We even, the verbiage we use is that we're buried in the likeness of his death and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Meaning, I'm saying publicly that I have a new life in Jesus, that Jesus has changed me, that something has happened in me. What am I trying to say? I'm saying all of that is about identification. Identification with God, identification with Jesus and his gospel, identification with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what baptism is. And I meet Christians. Some of you are these Christians that you sign me up. I'm on team Jesus. I'll witness of him. I'll testify of him. I'll even be of a church. But you've never been baptized. You'll never take that. You haven't taken that step yet. And I want to challenge you this morning to be like an Esther that even though you may not have previously, Esther has had years go by where she has failed to identify. Years, okay? But now she's finally taken that step. So if you're at the spot where you have for years not been doing this, if in the workplace you just, you just ghost on Jesus, you just absolutely, you, you have nothing to do with him, people have no idea, make today your day. I know years have gone by where you haven't, but step up to the plate and go to some of your coworkers, well, tomorrow's Memorial Day, probably not tomorrow, but Tuesday or Wednesday or this week and say, you know what, I, I, have, I normally don't talk about my faith and stuff like that, but I just want you to know I am a Christian. If you ever want to go to church, man, I'd love to have you. Talk to them. Start it. I know you haven't before, but start. Make today, make this week your week. If you haven't identified as part of a church, some of you are here and you need to come to Intro to Harvest to to learn more about that. Some of you right now are watching on live stream. Even this message will be turned into a podcast. It will be turned into our TV ministry and we'll be airing on Fox 53 in a couple weeks. So some of you right now are watching this and you're, you're using this message as your church and as it's just me and Jesus at home and maybe I'm supplementing it with a message from Pastor Mark. Don't do that. I know you're here, so I don't have to talk to you about that right now. But you that are watching right now or listening after the fact, I'm serious. Don't do that. This doesn't need to be your church experience. Supplemental, sure. But foundational or or, or the core, no. No, 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 no. Some of you haven't been baptized. Man, talk to me. Talk to one of the pastors. We'd love to help you with that. Take that step. 
So see that Esther's identifying with her people very publicly, very boldly, and let that be a lesson to you. But also see, and we noticed this before, but I, I, it's just so profound. Notice how respectful she is. She's so wise and shrewd as she approaches her husband. Verse number three, what does she do? She comes to her husband and she says, King, if I found favor in your sight, King, if it please you, at the end of it all, this whole, if I was sold into slavery, I wouldn't bother you. I wouldn't bring trivial stuff to you. What's she doing? Very deferential, very respectful. Now you tell me, not a trick question, yes or no, is Xerxes the king a super respectable guy? No, we've seen this already through this text, okay? He is prideful, he is angry, he is a wine-bibber, he's oftentimes just knocking a too few many back, he is unfaithful to his wife, he has a harem and women in his bed all the time, all over the place. He's not a super respectable dude. Now, is Esther respectful as she approaches him, yes or no? Yes. It's not that he deserves it, but she understands that she should be, and, it, and her request will go a lot further if she is. So I want to once again just remind us in the idea of, of wives to your husbands. There's a lot of biblical press on respect. Husbands, do your wife a favor Give her a shortcut and be respectable, okay? So men, man up and be respectable. I'll tell you that first. But women, even if he's not, understand that respect is still going to serve you better. God does not tell you to be respectful to your husband because he wants to take power away from you. He's trying to empower you. He's trying to help you get further faster with him. He's actually trying to help you have influence with him. So, so be respectful. If Esther would have, let's just imagine this conversation differently, okay? They're at the banquet. It's all set up. Esther, what do you want? Well, I'll tell you what I want, buddy. Um, what I want is for you not to sign laws that kill me. What I want is for you not to go like, try to kill my people and destroy all the Jews. Guess what? I'm Jewish. Surprise, okay? So what you did back there with Haman, stop being greedy, okay? Stop, stop trying to get as much money as you can. Why would you make a law like that? Xerxes, you, you're Jewish? Since when? What are you talking about? Don't turn this on me, buddy, okay? You never asked. You weren't interested. So what you need to do is you need to man up. And you... Now, I would have liked to have read that. Like, it would have been really fun to read if she just stuck it to the man. But it wouldn't have gone well for her. And she's smart enough to understand that respect is going to serve her well. And so let's go broader, not just wives to husbands, but anyone. If you are under authority, your employer, your boss, your coach, teens, parents, your parents, pastors, anyone that's an authority figure, politicians, police officers, whatever it is, I don't care if they're respectable or not. I hope they are. I really hope they are. But that does not change the cold, hard truth that whether they are or not, you approaching them with respect is not only the right thing to do, but the profitable thing to do. I can take you to Romans and show you where it very clearly says that the powers that be are ordained of God, and when it comes to our governing officials, our politicians, even if they're not super respectable and they, they sign in laws that you think are completely outrageous, that you're still to treat them with reverence and respect. I emailed uh, Bob Casey. 
uh, one of the Pennsylvania senators just here a couple weeks ago about a particular uh, piece of legislation, the Equality Act, that, and I've, I know Bob and where he stands on, on issues, and I know that he's probably going to vote to the affirmative. He's going to vote yes for this. I emailed him to express uh, that I hope and wish and pray that he would vote to the negative and, and why I, I wish and, and hope that he will. And they, he responded back and let me know clearly that he was, in fact, going to vote positively for this, which I expected, but it would have done me no good to give Bob a piece of my mind. I'm just going gonna, gonna to let him have it. That's, that's not helpful. It does me no good. Sure, uh, there's an avenue for me to make my request or to do it, but I'm going to do it in a respectful way because it's the right thing to do, right? You don't, let me just make it real clear. You don't get a hall pass to be disrespectful to authority just because they're a schmuck. You don't. If you can find a verse that says otherwise, give it to me. I'd be glad to listen to it, but you're not going to. You're going to find a whole lot of honor and reverence and respect, even if they don't deserve it. So take a lesson from her. Moving on, let's continue the story. Here's what happens. A lot of wrath a lot of terror, a lot of destruction. Verse 7b, end of verse 7. Then was Haman afraid before the king and the queen. So he's afraid, right? Bad day to be Haman. <laughs> you're going to the banquet, and you're posting on Twitter like, about to have dinner with the king and queen. Picture's coming later. You know, you're all excited. The queen loves me. I'm in her graces. And, and you, you show up, you know, what? Someone's trying to kill the, the queen? Who? Me? Oh, stink. Like, that's, this is what happened to this guy. <laughs> Like, he is, he is just smacked upside the face and completely doesn't know what's coming. And he's terrified, and rightfully so. Verse 7, the king, arising from the banquet of wine in his wrath, went into the palace garden, and Haman stood up to make requests for his life to Esther the queen. So he knows his head's on the chopping block. For he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. So the king is full of wrath. And full of anger, Haman knows his life hangs in the balance, and the king storms out into the garden. Now, we don't know exactly why. No one can prove exactly why the king went into the garden, but our best guess is that the king is trying to figure out how he can do away with Haman without implicating himself. Because here's how the story goes. If, if king stands up and just off with his head, you know, that's it. The next day, people are going to figure out Haman died, and they're going to start to talk about it. You hear Haman died last night? Haman, Haman died? How'd he die? King killed him. No, he didn't. They were like besties. Like, they were Batman and Robin. How The king killed him for what? He was trying to kill the queen. The, how would he do that? He got a law signed in. You remember that law a couple weeks ago where everyone went around and they decreed it and we heard that we could kill the Jews? Esther's Jewish. He was trying to kill the queen. Well, time out. Didn't the king sign off on that law? Well, yeah, now that you mention it, he did sign off on that law. So the king's killing the dude for the law that he signed off on? How's that fit, right? This is how this is going to go. And the king knows that if he just, boom, he's done with it, he's going to lose face. He, he's, he's going to take some damage. The optics are not good. This isn't a, a completely clean situation. That he's angry, he wants to kill this man, but it's highly likely that he's just trying to figure out how he can kill this man without implicating himself because the king is, in fact, implicated in all this, and he's had a hand in all this. So he goes out, and Haman's left with not too many options. And how awkward must that have been, right? Haman's the evil one. King's up. He's mad. <laughs> I just want to picture Esther and Haman sitting at the banquet. It's like, doo-doo-doo. Uh, what do you do if you're Esther? 
right? Like, that went well. Can you pass the potatoes, please, and thank you? Like, what do you do in that moment? But here's Haman, and he's like, I can either uh, just sit here in silence. No, I don't want that. Either. I can run out the door and try to hide. No, I can go plead with the king. I saw how angry he was. Not a good idea. Plead with Esther. That doesn't sound great either. It was my best option. So he decides he's going to get up. He's going to plead with Esther. Have mercy on me. I've, I've been an idiot. I didn't know you were Jewish. I'm so, I wasn't trying to kill you. I'm going to plead with her. Spare my life, please. And here's what happens, verse number eight. The king returned out of the palace garden into the place of the banquet of wine. And Haman was fallen upon the bed. We would probably say couch. She wasn't like in her bedroom. There was a, they lounged while they eat. It was a custom in that day. Where on Esther was. So he goes, approaches her. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to her goes onto the couch where she is, which is, it's a violation of the law. Uh, all of the king's harem was off limits to anyone but the eunuchs. You couldn't be even within 10 feet of them. You, you don't go near the king's women. So, so to go near where she was, that, that's, not, that's not okay. Then uh, here comes the king back in, middle of verse 8. Then said the king, will he force the queen also before me in the house? And he didn't think this, he said this. And as the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. So the king walks back in. Are you trying to rape my wife? And that's all that they need. Put the, put the bag over his head. He's done. They're, the, the servants, the guards, whatever they're, they're waiting. They are primed. They are ready to get this man. And that's all they need from the king. Now, it's highly unlikely that Haman is actually trying to sexually assault Esther. But the optics of this are far better for Xerxes. I'm going to kill you because you went through with the law that I signed into law. Eh, that's, not, that's not completely clean. But I'm going to kill you because you're trying to rape my wife. All right, that's better. You're close enough. This is ambiguous enough that I'm just going to go with that. So what, what are you trying to do? And there they go with him. There's, there's an old uh, Jewish commentary that says that perhaps the, the archangel Gabriel pushed Haman onto Esther. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. Uh, we have no reason to think that, that actually happened, but it's an interesting thought. Whatever happened, it, gave the, it was squishy enough to where it gave the king the leverage he needed to kill him for that. So, verse number nine, Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, behold also, a gallows, 50 cubits high, Haman made them for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king. They standeth in the house of Haman, the king said, hang him, hang him there on. So I'm sure Haman's like, thanks, Harbona, seriously. But hey, king, I don't know if you know this, but Haman actually constructed some gallows to kill Mordecai. Literally in his backyard right now. We could just use that. Good idea. Go use that. So they do. Verse 10, they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. Tons of irony, lots of reversals happening here. But finally, Haman meets his doom. Now, I want... I want you to notice with me for a few minutes the wrath, the terror, and the destruction. And, and look here, listen here. I want to be honest with you because I'm your pastor and I love you. And sometimes that means I tell you things you don't want to hear. And I even say things that I don't want to say. But they're true things. And they're biblical things that you need to hear for your own good. So what's happening in this moment is that a subject has wronged a sovereign, right? Haman, this man, has sinned and offended the king, and the king burns with wrath at this sin and deceit and maliciousness. He burns with wrath, 
and his wrath is eventually, the text says, pacified, namely in the destruction of Haman, the one who has sinned. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't read Esther 6 and Esther 7 and get to the end of Esther 7 and the king being angry and his wrath being appeased and Haman dying. I don't read all that and say, that's weird. I read that and I think, you know what? Sounds, yeah, I think I would act the same way. I'm not like, calm down, Xerxes, what are you worked up about? I've, I've seen, man, you, I can see why you would be angry at that. Haman's sin feels really heavy. When he, when he meets his death and destruction, it feels fitting. It feels like just deserts. It feels appropriate, like he deserved what he got. And if you can say in this text that here's Haman, and this feels, this feels pretty proper, that is a boomerang that will come back around and smack you right in between your eyes. Because you are meant to see in this text that you are more or less Haman. You are a subject who has wronged and rebelled against a sovereign God over and over and over again in small and big ways. You are someone, when it's all said and done, who has sinned and has offended not just a king, not just a human king, but the king of kings. You are a, a creature who has rebelled against a creator, and so am I. In many ways, almost every day, we want our own way, we are prideful, we are lustful, we are selfish, we are angry, and we do this over and over again. And the Bible says that God is a holy God and a just God, and when he sees our sin, his anger and wrath burns towards our sin, and he hates it, and he will not let it go. He will not wink at it. He will not put it to the side. He will be pacified, but the only way he is pacified is namely by death and destruction. Now, I know that some of you don't want to hear this. I understand that we live in a day and age where you say, time out, isn't God love? Like, like I'm a pretty good person, and doesn't God love me? God is love, but that's not the whole story. Don't make God being love or a God of love the, the, you know, the whole of his character. God's love, yes, and we'll get to that in a minute, but God is also holy and God is also just and God also hates sin. And the wrath of God is real. The wrath of God is actually spoken about more than the love of God. You can find the wrath of God mentioned some 600 times in the scriptures. Jesus himself talks about the wrath of God more than he talks about the love of God. And I know that we live in a very Oprah-ific, you're so awesome, you're not that bad, God loves you, you know, he, he really wouldn't have wrath on you or punish you. I know that we live, and that's very pervasive nowadays, even in churches, but I need you to know that's not true. I need you to know what the Bible says and how it is clear. So here is what the Bible says about our sin and our wrath. That God is holy and God is just and he never winks at sin and he never belittles sin. And I'm talking about all sin. I'm not talking about there's some mortal sins and there's some venial sins and the venial sins are just he brushes to the side or maybe you'll burn them off a little bit in, in purgatory or something. Well, they're, they're, they're small potatoes, but then the mortal sins are the really bad ones. I'm not talking about that, no. All sins... God, God cannot let those go. It's a big deal. It's an affront and, a, and an offense to a holy God. And God's wrath legitimately burns against sin and even against those who sin. And he will not let us go unpunished. But 
because God is a God of love, and he is, he has graciously and lovingly and mercifully provided a way for us to escape wrath and escape condemnation and escape punishment, namely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Son of God, chooses to take on flesh and to live a perfect life, undeserving of wrath, undeserving of punishment, undeserving of any wrong, and Jesus actually goes to a cross and dies, not just because, but for our sins, and the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus in our place, on our behalf, to provide a way for all of those who will turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ to provide a way of escape so that the wrath is no longer on but off and it doesn't exist for you any longer. So you need to know that if you have believed in Jesus, that the scriptures teach you that he is the propitiation for our sins. Big word, I know. But 1 John 2 says propitiation. That means that Jesus actually placates, appeases, soothes, pacifies the wrath of God. His death on the cross was, was too legitimately take the wrath upon himself and take the punishment upon himself. So if you have turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, praise God, his wrath does not abide on you any longer. But if you have not, if you have not believed on Jesus and turned to him and repented of your sins and put your faith on him, the scriptures are abundantly clear that his wrath still abides. It still remains, and that's scary legitimately scary. And in case you think I'm making this all up, I will read it to you from Romans chapter number two, okay? God's very loving. He, I mean, a million times over, he's demonstrated his love for us by providing a way of escape and providing Jesus for us. But if you reject that, man, there's wrath. And, it, and it's, it's not little, it's not light, it's a scary thing. Romans two, we'll put them on the screen, we'll read them to you. Therefore, and by the way, Romans 1 talks all about sinners and judgment and condemnation. That's not a pretty passage in and of itself. Then you get to Romans 2. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For where, you say, I don't judge people. Yes, you do. Here it is. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. So here's what it says. Think you're not bad. Think you, you know, you deserve to be let off the hook. Think that you're excusable and God, God shouldn't do anything to you. You're not. Just take the things that you judge others for. That's what it's saying. Just, just take the standards that you have for other people. And let's just start by applying your own standards, not even God's standards, your own standards to yourself. How many times do you fall short of your own standards? That you say, you should be humble and you should be teachable, but you yourself are oftentimes not humble and prideful and defensive and not teachable and you can't take the feedback. You tell your kids, don't be angry, stop whining, don't complain, get along with your brother and sister, but then you are complaining about your boss and you are whining about all the bad things that happened to you this month and then you are telling your kids, don't be angry and don't fight with them, but then you're angry at all your kids at the same time. And me too, Right? That's what he's saying. Take your own standards and apply them to yourself. Don't work too well. And those are your own standards that could be wrong. Then, verse number two, we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. So what he's saying is God's not going to make stuff up when he judges you. 
The judgment of God is not going to be fickle, but it's going to be truth. It's going to be according to his standards, and it's going to be things that you've actually done. He's not going to pull a Xerxes where he's like, oh, I think maybe, maybe he's trying to assault my wife, so I'll kill him for that. No, he, when he judges, it will be true. You will stand there, and you will know that you know that you know that I was guilty of that. You're right. I did do that. I have no excuse. Verse number three, and thinkest thou this, O man? The judges then would do such things. You know, you're the one that ha- you have standards for people, and dost the same that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. You have standards for people that you hold them to. You don't think God has standards for you? You judge them according to your standards. You don't think He's going to judge you according to His standards? You, you think you're going to escape that? You think that He's just going to like let it let one slip by the goalie? That ain't going to happen. God's going to God's going to judge you. You better believe He will. Verse four, or let's make it worse despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? So on top of all of this, not just his standards that you break and his laws that you break, on top of all this, he has forbeared you, forbearance, he's put up with you, he's been long-suffering to you, he's been patient with you, right? Any of you sin this week? Anybody get a lightning bolt? Didn't think so. He's put up with you and he's been patient with you. And do you despise the riches of his goodness, that in his goodness and his kindness and his love and his mercy, he's actually made a way of escape for you and he he offers to you Jesus Christ who who takes your sin and takes your shame, but you're going to despise that goodness. That's supposed to lead you to repentance, it says. That's supposed to lead you to repentance and faith in Jesus, but you despise it and you ignore it and you reject it. Verse number five, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart, so you're, you're still, you're hardening your heart and you're refusing to repent and you despise his goodness and you laugh at it and you mock at it and you say, I don't believe that. I don't need that. I'm not that bad. Why would Jesus need to die for me? My, my sins, no, no, no. I don't, I don't believe in that stuff. And in so doing, this says, and this is heavy, I know, but I'm just going to read it like it is. Thou treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of the judgment of God who will render unto every man according to his deeds. What it's saying is keep sinning. Keep refusing Jesus. Keep despising his goodness. Keep saying no, and you're not going to get away with anything. You're going to store up everything. You're storing up and treasuring up wrath for a day of wrath where God will righteously judge you, and it will not be pretty. That's what it says. Now, I say all of this to help two groups of people this morning. So I'm well aware that there's, there's one group of people that's like, shucks pastor like i just found this church and i was really hopeful and then you're gonna go all like hellfire and damnation on me like this is this is legitimately what drove me away from church in the first place this is why i didn't want to come back to church all this like divine scare tactics you know be be afraid god will set you on fire if you sin you know it's a scooby-doo episode and i have to run around like i'm scared all the time like I, this is why i hate this i say it to you to let you know legitimately you cannot read this and ignore the reality that you should be scared if you don't know jesus as your savior i don't know any way to say it other than hell is hot forever is a long time and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living god you should let that scare you legitimately god is not meant to be trifled with in that way and, and that's, it's abundantly clear in the Scripture. But I also say this, lest you think we, we end the sermon on a downer. 
I also say this for those of you that know Jesus and have been saved, and you didn't despise his goodness, but you responded to his goodness, and his goodness has led you to repentance and to faith, and you've put your faith and trust in him. I say it to you because it's important for you to know what you're saved from so you can know what to be thankful for, right? If you don't understand this, then you don't understand how much praise and adoration and love and respect and honor you should give to God that he justly could have zapped you. And he would have been completely just to do so, but in his love and mercy provided a way for you. And now you should respond to that and you should praise him that you don't have to go to sleep with one eye open and a helmet on, but you can rest assured that you don't have wrath on you anymore, right? That's good news. That's good news that it doesn't have to be this like, well, I don't know, like what will eternity, like is God going to be pleased with me or not? Am I going to make it or not? Like has my good outweighed my bad? You know, is, is, I don't know, how, how does he feel about me? Is he, is he angry at me today? Is he not angry at me today? You can know that you know that you know that if you have put your faith in Jesus and repented of your sins, that God saves you and he saves you from that sin and wrath is no more. That's good news. To know that even if I mess up, and I'm going to, and even if I fall short, that no longer does the wrath of God abide in me because he saved me from that. So if you are in the room, I am trying to, as clearly and frankly as I can, if you don't know Jesus, say, believe in Jesus. Because if you don't, there is a chance, if you keep delaying and keep delaying, that you end up like Haman. That a day comes that before you know it, you're smacked upside the head getting judged by a king and you're destroyed. That's a real possibility if you keep hardening your heart and you keep saying no. But for those of you that have said yes and you've responded in faith, know that you can praise him and thank him for all of his mercy and all of his grace and all that he's delivered you from. Let's pray to him and let's praise him right now together. Father, we are coming to you understanding the gravity and the heaviness of our sin and how holy you are, but Lord, also praising you for being this amazing God of love who didn't have to provide a way, but did in your infinite wisdom and mercy and grace provide a way so that we could be saved from our sins. We thank you for loving us and caring for us and for removing wrath from us and choosing to say you're my child and I love you and, and I have a home for you and heaven for you and a life for you. Jesus, we thank you and praise you this morning. We praise you for coming. We praise you for living. We praise you for dying and raising and for taking on our sin. Jesus, thank you for taking the wrath and the condemnation that we so justly deserved. We, with all that we have, want to move through this week just lifting our hands and telling you that you are good. We want to be in awe of your mercy and grace and love. So thank you for it. But Lord, I pray that we would not look at your love to the exclusion of the reality of our sin and your holiness and your wrath. Lord, if there's anyone in this room right now that does not know you as Savior, I pray that your goodness and love would lead them to repentance and faith today. I pray that they would trust you and that they would be delivered from your wrath this morning. 